Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Does everyone have uh, today's handout? In the beginning, let me apologize if we have a lot of typos. <laughs> <laughs> But those are quotations I want to share with you all today. So I wanted to finish by 3 o'clock in the morning last night. <laughs> I mean, morning, just today. Good afternoon. First of all, I would like to express my deepest appreciation to the Zen Studies Society and Shinge Roshi for giving me this precious opportunity to sit together, all of you here, on this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend session. Thank you very much. My deepest appreciation also goes to all the officers working very hard on this session that is becoming very successful and meaningful. Shika-san, Jikijit-san, Jokei-san, Jisha-san, Densu-san, and Tenzo-san. Thank you very much. Today is the last day of this three-day session. I know that everyone has been getting tired, both physically and mentally, especially at this moment, almost towards the end of this session. I'm sure you are very tired. <laughs> but I also know that everyone is doing Zazen so hard with your strong spirit and strong determination. Also, thank you for your hard work. I am deeply gratitude for practicing together and for being able to hear today. I was raised in a Zen temple. I had the opportunity to learn the Zen and Zen life practices from my grandfather and father and other later from my Zen masters at Heirinji monasteries and others. During all of these experiences, I have always felt that the Zen as a method of cultivation and the Zen way of living has been a real gift to my life. My everyday activities, from cleaning my house to raising my family, my relationships, and my dreams and intentions as a Zen practitioner, as a scholar, and as a father of my two lovely daughters, have all found the stability in the Zen practice that has moved me deeply and made me 
made my life feel very deep and rich. I am thus grateful to the many teachers who have come before me and left such a well-lit path for me to follow. Let me begin my talk with two Zen koans. The two koans I introduce here show the core idea of my talk, which is what our Zen tradition considers to be the true nature of the Zen practice. There is a Zen text called Rinzai-roku, or recorded saying of Rinji. The text is a collection of the sayings of a Chinese Rinzai Zen master Rinji, or in Japanese, Rinzai. He is the founder of the Rinzai Zen, which we are practicing here today. Please look at the number one quotation in your handout. Text says, the local officials invite Rinji to preach. Rinji went up to the teaching hall and said, in this lamp of red flesh, there is a true person without position, always going in and out through your face. Those who have not experienced this, look, look. At the time, there was a monk who came forth and asked, what is a true person without position? Rinji got down from the Zen bench, held the monk tight, and said, speak, speak. The monk hesitated, trying to think of something to say. Rinji pushed him away, saying, the true person without position, what a dry piece of shit. Then he returned to the abbot's quarters. We may want to ask the same question. <laughs> this monk asked to his master, what is a true person without position? To give a hint, let's look at the next koan. There is a text called 300 verse Shobo Genzo, or in Japanese, Shinji Shobo Genzo Sanbyakusoku. This text is a collection of koans Dogen compiled in the 13th century. Let's look at the case 21 of the text. Number two, it says, one day in the past, Master Banzan Hoshaku went to a shop in a town and noticed a customer who was buying pork. The customer said to the butcher, Please cut me one piece which is fresh. The butcher threw down his knife and holding his hands in shashu, Sir, where is there any unfresh pork here? The master realized the truth on hearing these words. 
What do we really know about these two koan stories? How do we understand these stories today? These stories have been preserved in the tradition because teachers have felt they have something to say to other generations and people in different cultural contexts. How do we cultivate what Lindsay and Dogen emphasize as the idea of Buddha nature? Buddha nature is the idea that we are all naturally endowed with awakened state of Buddhas, but fail to recognize it. How does the Zen practice help cultivate this Buddha nature? What is the true nature of the Zen practice? I find these questions important, especially today. And of course, for this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend session. It is not only because Zazen has a lot of benefits in a variety of areas, which I have little need to rehearse here, as there is now a robust study on this subject. I would like to rather suggest something else from these stories. I think it is a time that we are urged to reconsider and take action for the moral crisis of our own times, involving the abuse of power, injustice, and the many violations of human bodies and spirit we see around us every day. We are always thinking about authenticity, truth, freshness, and yet we don't always know how to recognize these qualities in ourselves, or people, or events around us. The true nature of the Zen in a more global context today lies in finding this authenticity, truth, and freshness of moral ground. Namely, it is a moral imperative that is called, called forth in us when we discipline our minds and see the nature of reality, others, and ourselves. Zazen cultivate this. So what exactly is a moral imperative? Simply put, it is a drive that emerges within us that calls us to act for the benefit of others. It calls us to bring a kind of altruism to the problems of our day whatever those problems are. Like the pork in the store, they are always fresh. But so, too, can be our response to these problems. Considering the koan stories given by Lindsay and Dogen, 
I want to think about how we find the moral imperative by reclaiming the stance of one of the Japanese Rinzai Zen tradition's greatest critics of abusive state power. In doing so, I reconsider the political and social criticism by Japanese Rinzai Zen master Hakuin Ekaku, 1686-1769. Hakuin occupies a prominent place in the history of Japanese religions as a reviver, thus the de facto founder of Japanese Rinzai Zen. It is from his lineage that all the presently existing lines and thus priest descend. Suzuki Daisetsu, DT Suzuki said, Japanese Rinzai Zen is Hakuin school. Mittakutsu Roshi, Soen Roshi Temple, Ryutakuji. Ryutakuji was founded by Hakuin for Tore, his student. So this means that we all hear a directly or indirectly related to Hakuin. For his political and social criticism, I look at his writing Hebichigo in Japanese, literally meaning in English, snake strawberries written in 1754 at the age of 70. I think that reclaiming this significant aspect of Hakuin as a social critic is a matter of moral imperative today. We must remember that we have a fine heritage from Hakuin in our Zen tradition. Voices from within the Zen tradition give us a moral ground for ethical action toward a better society, world, and humanity. Contemporary Japanese Rinzai Zen is often regarded as a tradition and concerned with moral formulations and contemporary political social events, focused solely on the quest for deep religious experience, which is called Kensho or Satori. Hakuin's major writings and considerable production of artwork, such as paintings and calligraphy, are held up as examples of highly developed capacity for religious experience. The tradition has almost exclusively emphasized his hard practice, decisive enlightenment experience, and tireless teaching activities in a hagiographical manner, which actually helped elevate him to his present position of present, uh, prominence. Yet, this very same pro, uh, process of remembrance is at the risk of ignoring his strong anti-elite social criticism and his equally present and cogent moral voice. 
Hakuin was a fearless fighter for social justice, whose campaign on behalf of farmers and the lower classes resulted in his condemnation of the luxurious lifestyle of political elites. I, as a Zen practitioner belonging to Hakuin tradition, focusing on the idea of the Zen, aesthetic practice, and the cultivation of moral imperative as a single practice, hope to open a new reading of this fascinating person, free of the power objectives of those who have been inventing, inventing him again and again since the time of his death in 1769. Hebeichigo, to note briefly, is originally a letter Hakuin wrote to the daimyo or feudal lord Ikeda family of Okayama Prefecture in Japan. Okayama is close to uh, Hiroshima. Okayama is uh, between the Kyoto and Hiroshima, the west side of Japan. There are many versions of it and soon after it was, it was first published, the Tokugawa shogunate government banned its further publication. Based on Hakuin's keen observations of the social as well as political conditions of those days, the letter urges the daimyo Ikeda family to implement just policies for farmers and the common people. Hakuin criticizes the luxurious lifestyles led by provincial daimyos and uses, uh, urges them to reduce such unwarranted expenditures. However, Hakuin's most striking critique of Tokugawa shogunate's political authority refers to daimyo processions which is called Sankin Kotai in Japanese. By this policy of Sankin Kotai, the shogunate required feudal daimyos to travel to the national capital Edo, or what is now Tokyo, and spend half of the year there, leaving their families behind as hostages until they returned to their domains. This policy was designed to control the daimyos by forcing them to expend large sums on costly annual processions to and from their domains. Hakuin fearlessly condemned the processions, those processions as a wasteful extra-government political system, especially as the daimyos began to compete with one another in the ostentatious shows of their demonstrative processions. Please look at the number three in your handout. Hakuin states in Hebeichigo, when one watches the Sankin Kotai processions of the laws of the various provinces a huge number of persons surround them to front and rear. 
bearing countless spears, pikes, weapons of war, horse trappings, flags, and curtain poles. Recently, even for trivial river crossings, depending on the status of the family, a thousand to two thousand ryo gold currency are used without even thinking about it. In the Tensho and Bunroku eras, when the country was not yet at peace, this was an established precautionary procedure. But the divine ruler Tokugawa Ieyasu, the founder of the Tokugawa shogunate, brought order to the world. And now, as the various laws go back and forth, there is no one even to shoot a rusted arrow at them. If under the motto, a human man has no enemies, you take the true precautions of being extremely benevolent, worrying about the people, and governing your domains well, then 10 good hereditary retainers to front and rear will do. It will be far more profitable than employing a horde of several thousand insincere flatterers. But if you are wealthy and powerful and do not bring pain and suffering on the people, how many thousand people you employ should be at your own discretion? Yet, from what one hears from all the provinces everywhere, the sadness of his life lodges itself among the common people. The last line is worth repeating. Quote, yet from what one hears from all the provinces everywhere, the sadness of life lodges itself among the common people. Quote. He continues, Please look at number four in your handout. He says, I hear from time to time of various easygoing lords who pay out sums of from 300 to 500 pieces of gold to buy singing and dancing girls or other so-called women of pleasure from the Kyoto area. They amuse themselves with them for two or three years and then exchange them for other girls, much as they would funds or pipes. This does not matter so much for a house blessed with splendid fortune and possessing an overflow of wealth, but very frequently people not so well provided for will pile up enormous debt. Then they will ignore, impoverish, and bring suffering to their hereditary retainers, whose duty it is, when an emergency arises, to ward off the flying arrows and sacrifice their very bones and flesh for their lord. In a time of need, these lords will expend their money on people who are unfit even to carry a raincoat box. In the end, isn't it the people as a whole within the domain who suffer? What state of mind is it that allows for the concentration of luxury in one person while causing many to suffer? 
We cannot ask this enough. Quote, what state of mind is it that allows for the concentration of luxury in one person while causing many to suffer? Hakuin goes on to draw the connection between elite ostentation and the suffering of the masses, namely denouncing the elite extravagant extra lifestyles are the main reason that farmers starve and riot. He emphasizes that the most wretched and pitiable people are farmers, describing their uprising in many parts of Japan in those days. Again, let me repeat this. Quote, what state of mind is it that allows for the concentration of luxury in one person while causing many to suffer? This was very brave, revolutionary, and radical in 1754 under the Tokugawa dictatorship in Japan. Furthermore, Hakuin states, Please look at the number five in your handout. He says, the common people day by day grow feebler, month by month become more stunted. It becomes impossible to support a wife and family. Each house mourns under the suffering. Each family falls into decline until misery and starvation are everywhere. There is grain in the fields in abundance, thus hatred wells up within. At last, there comes a time when life is no longer of any consequence. When things reach this point, 20 or 30,000 men gather together like swarms of ants and bees. Screaming their hatred, they first surround the village head's house, smash open the doors, and scatter his possessions. If they catch him, they will be sure to tear him to pieces. Slowly aroused, they end up by storming the city, entering its gates, and creating riot. Then, <coughs> The temples within the domains are called upon. And with deception and persuasion, they will bring things under control. Once peace is restored, a spy is sent around in secret to search out and seize the conspirators. Then, 20 or 30 men are crucified or executed, and their rotted bones litter the fields. But it must be known that the conspirators are not among the people. They are the official and the village head. If the official imitates an earlier benevolent, uh, benevolent official and takes into account the quality of the crops each year, investigate what is good and what is bad for the people, sees to it that 
the high and the low gain profit equally, and shares in the misfortunes and joys of the noble and the base, who will take an evil attitude towards the ruler of the province. Don't they say that a desperate rat will bite a cat? No, the conspirator is not among the people. How can you say that he is not the official and the village head? Expressing his empathy for the farmer's plight and thus their riots, he even goes so far as to say that, quote, a rat, desperate rat will bite a cat. With this intense tone, Hakuin criticizes the daimyo's immoral behavior as inexcusable. Daimyo's ideal behavior is to eliminate their extravagant lifestyles, to trim their frivolous expenses, and to turn their primary attention to the common people and to the creation of policies that will benefit them. Hakuin is concerned first and foremost with taking care of the common people from political and social oppression and fear, not to speak of political social uncertainty and unsafe. In an intense, clear tone, Hakuin criticizes the ostentatious processions and luxurious lifestyles whose enormous cost was ultimately paid by taxes squeezed, by, squeezed from the common people. His consistent concern about the power and authority reflects a solid critique of misused resources and also a critique of people who ignore human suffering to advance their own power agendas. Again, let me repeat this. Hakuin's examples reflect a critique of misused resources and also a critique of people who ignore human suffering to advance their own power agendas. I have been disturbed in observing the extent to which this very important side of Hakuin has been missing in action from the contemporary Japanese Zen Buddhist circle. I am dead serious when I assert that we have an authentic and vital heritage of criticism of the abuse of power and authority within the Zen tradition. Through this point of view, I want to emphasize the importance of the moral imperative in a more global context for coming decades, for us, and for the next generation leaders. If Hakuin were alive now, what would he be saying and doing? What kinds of unique literary and artistic expressions would he use to comment on current political social issues?
excessive CEO bonuses and military budget. More can be easily given, especially today. Where is Hakuin's voice of dissent today? Reclaiming this aspect of Hakuin restores a moral voice and rehabilitates our moral conscience. This moral conscience is not based on any religious dogma and rituals, but rather on the very fundamental moral, ethical principles, principles embedded as a human in a human community and relationship. This moral ground is something we can cultivate in our Zazen practice. The true nature of Zazen practice in a more global context lies in this find of moral ground as a human. Hakuin was a voice of dissent. His voice, his legacy, still resonates today as dissent. Everything is at stake in finding voices of dissent in our traditions. Everything. Everything. I can only hope that someone, somewhere, the daimyos, shoguns, and leaders of our days are listening. I opened my talk with the two koans and talked about the power of Zazen. Zazen cultivates the awareness of being here now, sharpening attention and connectivity, and nurturing empathy and compassion. Zazen brings about a calm unity and intimacy with our human fellow human beings. This argument, then, can answer the question of how and in what ways Zazen helps enhance the mutual understanding of different people from different backgrounds and helps make efforts for the advancement of a better society, world, and humanity. This is what we need now. We do the Zen. We do the Zen. We do the Zen and Linji and Dogen's stories will talk to you. Once you hear the true meaning of their voices, then you cannot stop there. You have to use the power of Zazen practice in your everyday life. And as that mind of Zazen opens into your daily life, you wake up to a softer, more integrated and ethical way of being in the world. That is a way, that is a way and probably the only way, then 
really has a life. To conclude, I want to introduce something I truly believe. The practice of returning to a beginner's mind. Here, it is a mantra. The mantra is cultivating the Zen. Cultivating the Zen. The solution to the moral crisis of our day including world hunger and social justice, lies in the bottom of your jihad's ball. Thank you very much. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.